Well, as Mike said, my name's Frank. Now we got that out of the way, we can move on here. Um, so yeah, I met Mike back in, uh, in, uh, when he was at CCLEX, Calvary Chapel LEX. My wife and I, at the time we were missionaries. Uh, we were missionaries in Europe for about 15 years. We uh, were church planning there and, and worked in Greece, worked in Poland, worked in Germany. Um, eventually, about a little bit over a year ago, we came back to the U.S. And one of the churches that supported us asked me to come on staff as an assistant pastor for a season. Um, just to focus in on some projects, do some leadership training, um, and various other things that I've been blessed to do. And this particular week, uh, we just happened to be vacationing over in Orange Beach. I've never been to Alabama, but I love it. It's beautiful, beautiful state, um, wonderful beaches, warm water, much warmer than the Pacific, um, which is frigid in comparison. Um, so I contacted Mike and just told him that we're going to be out. We wanted to check out the church, and here we are. So now I'm teaching. What do you know about that? <laughs> Seems like every time I go on vacation, I contact a pastor friend and say, hey, I'm going to be in town. Say, hey, we want to teach. <laughs> but I love it. I love sharing God's word with, with new groups of people and um, just diving in. So this morning, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to look at a story that I'm pretty sure most of you guys are familiar with, especially if you've seen the VeggieTale version of it. Um, I'm going to be looking at the fall of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for this time in your word and ask that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to all that you have to say to us, Lord. Pray that you'd speak. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear and faith, Lord, to, to trust and to obey, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by just making a very simple statement, um, and that's this. God doesn't always make sense. You know, would some of you guys bear witness with that, that throughout your, your Christian experience, walking with God, knowing your Bibles, growing in the Word, growing, growing in your, your Christian experience, that there have been times and seasons when you just kind of look around and go, God, what are you doing? You know, you're just not making sense. Sometimes it even boils down to things that you believe God is leading you to do, that there's really just it seems like it's kind of beyond reason. Well, it might even be said that, that there are oftentimes that God even works outside of what we might consider to be sensible as people. You know, I think the average person likes to think reasonably and be sensible about life. And sometimes the Lord just really works outside of the box. You know, and, and what we're looking at today in this story of, of the fall of Jericho is, is a story that is really akin to that. You know, the Bible does teach us that we need to trust God regardless of, of, of what we see or, or don't see. And the times when, when his wisdom doesn't really match up with our wisdom, we should be able to step back and go, you know what, God, your wisdom is a little better than mine, you know, and never be in the place where we think, you know, God, maybe you need to sit down and take some cues from me. <laughs> because as we're looking at the story of, of the fall of Jericho today, we're going to learn a very, um, a very real and applicable lesson. And that is at the times that God doesn't make sense, it's good for us to be able to sit back and go, you know what? We know one thing for sure. You are God and we are not. And at the end of the day, we need to simply trust that you love us and that you would never misguide us if, if we're trusting you under any circumstances. Well, the story of the fall of Jericho is, is in, um, again, in Joshua chapter 6, and, is, and it really echoes this from the beginning to the end of it. Ultimately, it's reminding us that the wisdom that God displays is, is the greatest wisdom ever. 
And ultimately, even beyond that, it teaches us something very simple. That the wisdom that God displayed even in the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, is something that, that the average human being doesn't really resonate with or understand or even thinks makes any sense at all. But it is really the most sensible thing that God has ever done. You see, specifically as we look at, at the story in Joshua chapter 6 today, we're going to see that, that God made Joshua an absurd promise. And we're going to see that that absurd promise was followed by an absurd battle plan that ultimately led to an impossible victory. You know, when you put those three things together, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. But the amazing thing that we'll see in this text today is that it was just the opposite. Now, the book of Joshua, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. You know, it's really, no offense, ladies, but it's really a guy's book. You know, it's like the action-adventure book of the Bible filled with violence filled with battles. You know, there's people fighting and lopping each other's heads off. I mean, come on, it's a guy's dream, right? It's a great book. You know, it's really the story of, of Israel's conquest of the promised land. And we see this conquest unfolding day by day, bit by bit, battle by battle, and city by city. It's not an overnight thing. It's a long period of time in which the Lord takes Israel and fulfills the promise of giving them this land. But he doesn't just hand it to them, he makes them fight for it. And really what this book is, is a picture of the Christian life and our experience of sanctification. It's a picture of, of, the, of our transformation from the old man into the image of Christ. And it's one that we experience and go through day by day over a period of time. It takes place after the, after the death of Moses, after Joshua assumes command, or is given command rather, of the nation. And the very first battle of all the battles that they're going to fight in this book is the Battle of Jericho. And I think as you look at it, it's probably, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's the most, but it's one of the most supernatural victories and battles that they experience. And it's one of the greatest displays of God's favor and God's power at work in Israel. Now Jericho, um, as, it, as it was with many of, of the uh, cities in the land, was a city-state. You know, if you look back at that at that piece of geography at the time, and really much of the known world, you know, rather than these big city or, or, or nations that we have now, there were empires back then, but, you know, today we have the United States, we have Russia, we have Britain, you know, we have, we have nation states. Back then it was more common for cities to be their own independent nations. You know, so it's, it's like Mobile would be its own city and nation with a wall around it. The mayor would be this absolute dictator king. Hopefully that's not the case here. I don't know. <laughs> You know, or maybe you could look, look out west and you could see Denver, you know, closer to where we're living at currently. And it's another city-state with a wall around it and it probably does have an absolute dictator, but you didn't hear me say that, um, <laughs> built, built around it. And then further on, you have Los Angeles, which is a completely different planet, <laughs> you know, with the wall built around it to keep them in. Um, <laughs> I say that because I'm from there and you should have kept me in, just saying. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the idea of what we're looking at. Israel was going into this new, new land, but it wasn't just one nation they were taking down. There were multiple nations that were kind of these little mini empires that would live behind walls. Out of them, Jericho was the foremost and greatest. It was the most powerful city-state in the land of Canaan at the time. And so you got to ask the question, why would God bring this really untested army? They've maybe had a couple battles on the other side of the Jordan at this point. Why would he bring them into the promised land? And, what, and, and their first foe, their first battle, their first engagement they had was against the strongest possible enemy they would face. 
Why would he do that? Why not just warm them up, you know, with a little village down here with 10 people in it? You know, why not just give them an easy project at first? Well, guys, I think the whole heart behind this story is that from the get-go, from the moment they crossed over, God wanted them to learn a lesson. And that is that the battle belongs to the Lord, and if they trusted him, regardless of how ridiculous the plan might be, they, had, they would have nothing to worry about throughout the entire conquest. Well, let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2 of this text. And the first thing we're going to see here is that, again, God gave Joshua, I think what most would consider to be an absurd battle plan. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You see, this promise was absurd because there was really no visible evidence to support it. The very first thing that God says to, to, to Joshua in this story is, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. But my question is this, see what? You know, here the entire you know, is, Israelite army has moved over. Again, they weren't completely unseasoned. They weren't completely green. They had a little bit of battle, battle experience, but they were a primitive army. They did not have the kind of equipment and the training and the, and the manpower to be able to take down a city as fortified as Jericho. And yet Joshua is standing there looking at this massive fortress, and God speaks these words to him. He says, see, I've given it into your hands. You know, the incredible thing about that is that Joshua had nothing other than the word of God to stand upon. You see, Jericho was a virtual fortress. And short of the people opening the gate and inviting the Israelites in, there was no logical reason or way for this, for this primitive army to touch the people that were hiding behind the wall. It, would, it was virtually impossible. They were untouchable as long as they kept the, the gates closed. Just to give you a little bit of, a, of an idea of what they were up against, archaeologists, as they've excavated the site, the thing that they've discovered about the city of, Jer of Jericho is that the wall, now we're just talking about the wall itself. It was a three-tiered wall. In other words, there were three stages to it. Ultimately, what it led up to was a 46-foot wall. That's pretty high, even by modern standards. It was six feet thick. And so this thing was massive. In the days before artillery, in the days before smart bombs, no tanks, they basically had slings, spears, and swords. Okay, when you're looking at something that fortified, it really, kind of, it really kind of makes you realize that the Israelites, if you are one of them, you're looking at this, you're getting this promise from God, the thought in your mind nat possibly naturally would have been, we have zero chance of doing this. But you guys, that's the place that God wanted them to be at. When God spoke to Joshua and he said, see, I've given it into your hands, he wanted him to be able to see beyond what he could see. You see, Joshua had to believe in what he couldn't see and, and, and basically understand that the promise was real, even though there was no evidence for it whatsoever. As New Covenant believers, we are called to believe in the unseen as well. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, trusting in God makes the intangible tangible. It makes the invisible visible. When we simply believe his word, regardless of how, how realistic it might seem, when we put God into the equation and understand that there's nothing that he can't do, that should just solve it for us. 
We have been called to believe in an invisible God and oftentimes in promises that, are, that seem beyond the scope. That's exactly what was happening here. God gave, gave Joshua an absurd promise. And it was absurd because there was no visible evidence to, to, um, to basically say that it was going to really happen. But it doesn't stop there. It only gets a little bit more interesting. The next verses, verses 3 through 14, we're going to see that God gave Joshua an absurd battle plan as well. Now, this battle plan had three steps. Okay, step one was march in circles. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. You shall march around the city, all of you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This, this you shall do six days. And seven, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the, blow the trumpets. So step one, march in circles. Okay, there, when, I, when I stop and I look at that, I'm, you, you got to stop and think, about, okay, march in circles and do what? March in circles. Blow your trumpets when, you know, at the appropriate moment, at the appropriate time. Step two, yell at the top of your lungs. Look, notice verse five. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Okay, so now we're shouting after marching around in circles. Okay, maybe this is like the early, earliest design of a sonic weapon. Maybe as we yell real loud at the top of our lungs and we focus it on one part of the wall, it's going to blast a hole in it. I don't think they were thinking that. You know, they were hearing this, the, these directions from God, or at least Joshua was at this point. It was only him and God having this, one, this face-to-face conversation where God is speaking to him and laying down this battle plan. And he's explaining to him, this next thing you have to do is just yell at the top of your lungs. Okay, well, does it get any better? Let's look at the rest of verse 5, and we'll see step 3. Wait for the wall to fall down and run in. (laughs) Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. You know when you read this, it sounds more like a game of Simon Says than it does a battle plan. Do we have any vets here? Any of you guys in the military or former military? Well... I think that as you went through your military training, you know, I don't think your commanders or, or even guys that have gone through West Point have taken a class on battle strategy that sounded anything like this. You know, hopefully you, you would have never gotten these sort of bat- battle plans from those that were supposed to know what they're doing, saying, okay, here's the plan. You're going to walk in circles around the enemy, yell at them, and then run straight at them because they're just going to all fall over dead. <laughs> See, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. When you look at this and you compare it to, to, to modern warfare, when you compare it to ancient warfare, when you compare it to building anything or doing anything that, that takes any sort of reasoning or logic, it simply doesn't fit. This is so outside the box and so completely ridiculous that I have to say, I, it, you know, it, being Joshua and hearing this for the first time must have been a challenge for him. Because not only had God given him a promise without any sort of evidence of how it was going to come true, but he gave him this absurd battle plan to follow as well, and he had to do it. At our church, I actually taught this message several weeks ago at our church, and we have a lot of military guys. And so one of the guys, I could see him just kind of sitting there. He's sitting in the front row, and he's just thinking really, kind of really just kind of pondering it. And afterwards, he approached me and said, you know, the only thing I could, I could see about this that is somewhat reasonable is that if, if you were inside Jericho and you were one of the soldiers 
that as you see these guys walking in circles around you, it probably would have drawn out the whole garrison at one point where they're just standing there looking out at you, walking in circles and thinking, what's wrong with these guys? It kind of put them all in the perfect position to get wiped out later. <laughs> you know, and so maybe there was a little bit of logic and reason behind it, but God didn't tell that to Joshua. He didn't say, look, Joshua, as you're following these directions, I'm going to draw out the entire army of Jericho. They're all going to be on the wall, and then when the wall falls down, they're going to be flat as pancakes. You don't hear that. The fact of the matter is this. God gives this battle plan. He tells Joshua what to do. And Joshua and the Israelites needed to trust God unconditionally without, without any sort of logical explanation. You notice the thing that's missing here? God says if you do these things, this will happen. But he doesn't say how. That's the amazing thing about this, is that we, we, we see that they are given instructions to follow, and they are given a promised result. But there is no logical connection made between the two of how it would actually work. They were expected to trust God and simply do it without understanding the workings of it. And you guys, the amazing thing about this is as we step back from this, we really see a picture of salvation. Because there is no logical, logical connection with everything that happened in Jericho. Likewise, there's no logical connection with a man being nailed to a cross in Israel 2,000 years ago and that actually being efficient to save all of mankind if we believe. Where's the logic in that? How does it work? You know, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man, so that had something to do with it. But do any of us really understand how it's possible for the death of one man to actually cleanse all of humanity from their sins and, and give us all forgiveness simply if we believed? If every human being believed, they would be forgiven. It's that simple. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18 where he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God used what was considered or what is considered by the world to be foolish means to save the world. That is the kind of God we're speaking about today. When we read the Bible, we're reading and studying about a God who works outside of human reasoning because he can because he is God and we are not, and the foolishness of God is, is wiser than the wisdom of man. As believers growing in Christ and experiencing that transformation into his image, these are, these are some of the truths that we need to own and walk in. There have been so many times in my own life in simply following the Lord when his plan didn't seem to make sense. When it seemed like I, 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 you know, as missionaries, you know, this is something that we experience frequently, where the Lord would move us from one place to another to do a work that we thought we were going to do when, when things completely changed. You know, we moved to Greece um, by way of Italy back in, in 2010, I think, right? 2010, 2011. Um, and our initial plan was to go in and to plant a Greek church for, Greek, for the Greek, now, we're going to Greece. Hey, it's filled with Greeks. Let's go plant a church for them. That was our vision. That was our idea. That's what we believe God called us to do. But the amazing thing that happened is that we didn't do that. That's not what happened. Inadvertently, we ended up planting an Iranian church for Farsi speakers because we had these, these refugees coming from um, the Farsi-speaking world, really, um, not so much Arabic at that point. And the Lord just opened the door for us to minister to these groups of people. You want to talk about God not making sense? He took a Mexican guy from L.A. to Athens, Greece to plant an Iranian church. 
figure that one out. But that was our experience. And the thing that we discovered is as we were going and as God was unfolding what his actual plan was and how it was different than what we thought it would be and expected, we saw him do some amazing things that we would have never dreamed of. But I, I, I can honestly say that unless my wife and I trusted him and just simply were patient and waited, um, we would not have seen the sort of fruit that we ended up seeing in the long run. Well, receiving the plan is one thing. So Joshua gets this absurd battle plan from God. Now, communicating that to other people, that's a completely different story. Let's look at verses 6 through 14. It says, then Joshua, the son of Nun, hey, who's the only person in the Bible that didn't have parents? Joshua, the son of Nun. <laughs> Bad joke. Okay. I'm not a dad, but that has to be probably one of the dad jokes of the year. Come on now. Okay. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let, the seven, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he, so he had the ark, ark circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua was, rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of, of the Lord, went continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went around them. But the rear guard came after the, Lord, came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. You see, Joshua was tested here. Because again, it's one thing to, to receive these ridiculous directions, these absurd, this absurd battle plan. It's a completely th different thing to communicate that to other people and then expect them to follow you with it. You see, Joshua had to communicate God's directions regardless of how absurd they might have sounded to the people. Now, you have to, we have to put this in context a bit. Let's remember who Joshua was talking to here. This wasn't a group of easily compliant people. Okay, remember they kind of had this experience in the desert for 40 years walking in circles because they were not good listeners? Remember that 40 years earlier when they came to the banks of the Jordan with Moses still in control and he sent these 12 spies into the land that they all came back, 10 of them had bad reports and poisoned the rest of the people, but Joshua and Caleb, the guys who said, let's just go in and do it today, now. You know, young 20-year-old guys. You know, remember when you were young and 20 and just wanted to just go do stuff without thinking? <laughs> You know, that's kind of where they were at, but they were right. They were actually the right ones. But the other guys were just fearful, and they infected the entire nation. And so as a result of that, they went back into the wilderness and walked around in circles for 40 years. They were not compliant. They, they, they did not have a history or a track record of being in sync with their leaders. And so Joshua had to go to this group of people. Now, mind you, it's a different generation because all the really rebellious ones were dead and in the wilderness still. But this new group of people, he just wasn't sure how this was going to fly. You know, the amazing thing you see here is you don't see, see Joshua arguing with God. And I think if, it, if he did, it would be there. Because typically when 
people in the Bible argue with God, it's there. Now, isn't it great that the Lord doesn't record our, our, our arguments with him for all the world to see for all time and eternity? You know, but Joshua was just listening to him and going, okay, let's do it. But I'm sure, my speculation, but I think it's reasonable, that there was a thought in his mind is, like, how are these guys going to respond to this? How are they going to listen after I've seen what they've done to Moses? I see how much more gray hair they've given him. You know, he's dead. You know, I mean, he was overwhelmed by them so many times. And now it's my responsibility to bring to them this completely ridiculous battle plan and expect them to listen and to follow and to buy into it. You see, the challenge that we have as New Covenant believers is similar. Because, again, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The simple message of the gospel, as simple as it might be, to some, it is repulsive. You know, again, I could speak as a missionary who worked overseas in different religious settings, and one of the most difficult things for people to believe in the nations that we worked in was that salvation was just so simple. That it was as simple as just receiving it because you believe in this simple message. You see, as believers, we do not have the luxury of making the message more acceptable to people. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins. And it's, and it's simple. And if we believe in him, through that act of faith alone, we are saved. And it's really that simple. We do not have the freedom. We do not have the luxury of trying to make the message more acceptable to people today in 21st century America. We have been given a commission by the Lord and a message that to some is utter foolishness, but yet we do not have the right to change it at all. And unfortunately, guys, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I have to say that there are people that try to change the message today to make it more acceptable. There are those that will water it down. There are those that will make it more palatable for people in order for people to simply believe it. But if they're believing in a watered-down message, they're not believing in the message that God gave. And it's not the saving, saving message of the gospel of Christ. Well, what happened here when Joshua obeyed God? You see, again, he receives these directions, and then he has to give them out. Well, the amazing thing is that the people obeyed. They broke the trend. And again, you don't see any sort of pushback. And if it was there, it would be recorded for us. You know, nothing's hidden in the Bible from us as far as the way people responded to, to, to God. You know, we see it plain and simple. When Joshua brought them this absurd battle plan, they listened to him and they said, okay, let's do it. That really shows a massive progress in the lives of the people. To go from the place where they were, they were just complaining constantly and, and, and being such a thorn in the side of Moses for so many years, of not wanting to believe God for simple and easy things, to this, to being able to trust God to take on their greatest enemy first, knowing that they were ill-equipped, ill-trained, and that God was going to bring them a victory through these completely ridiculous uh, means. They trusted him. You see, when we trust the Lord, when God brings us through those desert experiences, when we wander in the desert for years sometimes, God's intention of that is to teach us to simply trust him, to teach us to obey him. Those times are hard. I've been in several throughout my Christian life. I've been a believer since 1990. 
And the experiences that I have had as a believer, especially as a missionary, you know, we've had many wilderness wanderings, and it's difficult. It's painful. But God has used them so powerfully in my life and in my wife's life to teach us to simply trust him, that we cannot look back on them and despise them, but see them as valuable training tools in the hands of God. So what happens here? Well, let's look at verses 15 through 21, and we'll see that God fulfills his promise. Because again, he brings an, out, an impossible outcome from this absurd promise and absurd battle plan. Verse 15 says, But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, they only marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now it shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. You see, when you read about this event, again, the people shouted and the walls fell flat because God promised it. It's not that their shouts had any sort of power. You know, I don't know, maybe God was just having fun to see if they would do it. You know, it's not that, again, they weren't creating the world's first sonic weapon. This was a supernatural act. Now, the amazing thing is that when we read about the walls falling down flat, much like it's happened in many times, you know, throughout history, the archaeological record matches the biblical narrative. See, when they did an excavation of Jericho, they discovered that the wall had indeed fell down flat. It fell outward, all at the same time, completely flat for the people to be able to, to, to walk right over it, go right into the city, and to take, take it down. It's amazing. So many times there have been people who are skeptical about the things we read in the Bible because perhaps they sound impossible. Even basic things, like for example, in Romans chapter 16, I don't remember the exact verse, Paul is writing to the, um, to the Romans, He's in Corinth, and he names a man named Erastus. Okay, so it says, Erastus, the city treasurer, sends his greeting. So apparently this man, Erastus, a local um, politician bureaucrat, you know, working in, in, in Corinthian government, was part of the church. He'd become a believer, and he was sending his greetings along with Paul to the, to the believers in Rome. Well, for, for years, there was no archaeological record of a man named Erastus being a treasurer in Corinth. Well, where we lived in Greece, we were about an hour and 20 minutes away from ancient Corinth. You know, we'd been there many times taking different groups, Bible college teams, you know, outreach teams or whatever. Um, and at this one part in the city, there's a stone that's part of the pavement and it has this, it, it's kind of cordoned off. And there's this, this, this man's name is on it. And on this inscription in, in Greek, it says, this portion of the road was built by Erastus, different office in the city, not, not the treasurer. But basically there was a man named Erastus that was a bureaucrat in Corinth and the way they built the roads back then is the, the rich people would basically just pay for it and they would put their name on it. So it's almost like when you go through the park benches and people who've denoted, you know, don't denoted. 
I'm forgetting words here, donated or whatever. They were givers to the park or whatever, and their names are put on a plaque, you know, as a memorial to them. You know, when some of the upper echelon of the cities back then would build certain parts, they would just put their name on it so people would know, hey, it was out of my own pocket. I paid for this, my improvements. I wanted to do it because we needed it. This man's, this man's name was unearthed, you know, decades after there was this argument about, you know, let's, let's just throw the book of Romans out because obviously Paul was delusional. There was no man named Erastus. It's all fake. It's not real. But there it was. Archaeologists uncovered the stone with his name on it. Different office, but he was of the right kind of class, basically the, the social class, that would have been ruling in that time and doing one of the jobs that the city you know, needed to be done. Archaeology, time after time after time, has proven the biblical record to be accurate. And that's the same exact thing we see here with the, with the fall of Jericho. As impossible as this, this story seems, we know God did it. We knew God did it before archaeologists uncovered it because the Word of God says so. But that's just kind of a cherry on top. And when archaeologists get out there in the dirt, especially the atheist ones that don't believe, and they discover that the Bible is actually true, it's pretty powerful. The city wall fell down flat. You see, because the people trusted in God, they got to see God work. And so they were able to run in just as they were told. You know, their, their trusting and obeying allowed them to, to see what they could not see. They experienced a victory that was virtually impossible. But because of, because of them simply trusting, the Lord did this great thing that he said he was going to do. Now, in verses 23 through 25, we see that, that Joshua keeps his promise to this woman, Rahab. Verse 22 says, But Joshua said to the two men who spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house. Now, how would you like to be known, you know, in the Bible forever as Rahab the harlot? You know, just think about that. So he doesn't even address her by name. He just says, Go into the harlot's house and bring from there and bring, and bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men went, and the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. She who so she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So if you remember back a couple chapters before in chapter 2, you know, as they crossed over the Jordan, or just before it, Joshua sent two spies in. He didn't want to do the whole 12 thing again because it was disastrous 40 years before. So he sent two guys in that I'm sure he trusted to go in and to spy out the land, specifically Jericho. You know, when the people in Jericho knew they were there, and they were looking for them, this lady Rahab, who unfortunately is forever known as a harlot, um, hid them. And so by her doing that, she expressed faith. She told, she told these men, I know that God has given you victory. I believe in the God of Israel that he's the greatest God of all. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she said. And so as a result of that, I'm hiding you. Would you please spare us when you come in? And so they made a promise to her. They promised to spare her. You know, the, mark, the way that she was going to mark her house is by putting a scarlet cord in the window so the Israelite army would see who they were or her and her family were. And the thing that this really makes me think about is this. You see, when God makes a promise of salvation to those who believe in him, nothing's going to change it. He won't break it. 
He has made a way for us to be with him for eternity, to be forgiven, to be born again into his family. And he will never revoke that promise. In the same way that Joshua told these men to honor the promise that they had made because this woman believed. And then her action of faith was to hide the spies. For us, we have the same promise that because we have placed our faith in Christ, if we have, nothing can ever change that. Nobody can ever remove that from us. God will most certainly will never break that promise because he is faithful and able to keep his promise. And so in verse 26, Joshua curses the city, where he says, Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who, who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundations with his firstborn, and his youngest shall keep set he shall set up its gates. Or with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. You see, after this period of time, there were two other cities named Jericho since. One of them still exists today. But neither one of them was the original city of Jericho. God was making a statement. And that's part of the reason that none of the Israelites were to take anything out of the city. Okay, the precious metals they were to take out and simply put it in the treasury, it was basically for the national funding. They needed money as a nation. It was going to take care of, of them financially. It was going to take care of the needs of the tabernacle and, and, and all of that. But the people weren't to go in and just to privately take things for themselves. The next chapter gives a bad story about that, how they did it. God was making an example because as he was going, he was showing the people of Canaan something. He was saying that this city, Jericho, the city that basically represents your entire land, your strongest and foremost city, I'm going to wipe out every remembrance of it. It's going to be gone. And, and never will anybody ever rebuild this city again. And it never happened. Nobody ever rebuilt it. You see, Joshua is, is, is making this charge, but at the same time, he's speaking prophetically. Because this tells us something. The judgment of God is so substantial that it is unchangeable. It's final. When God brings this kind of judgment, it's a judgment that can never be undone. And guys, if... if if we have not yet placed our faith in Christ, that should strike our hearts with fear. Not in a bad way, but in a way of understanding, you know what? God means business. And as a God of grace and love and mercy, we have to remember something. He will offer us forgiveness. He will give us eternal life for free if we accept it. But if we reject the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God, the only thing we have left is his judgment. Because not only is he a God of love, and of grace, and of mercy, but he's a, he is a holy and righteous God as well. You see, the people of Jericho, and really the people of the land, they were evil. They were a wicked people. They were people who were worshiping idols, and that was, only the, that was only part of it. But the way that they worshiped idols was horrendous. They sacrificed their own children to these gods. They would literally kill their children in order to worship the gods that they, that they considered to be gods in the land. They did things that, even by today's standards, would, act, would, would just horrify the average person. And God gave them hundreds of years to repent, and they never did. And because they refused to receive his mercy, the only thing they were left with was his judgment. And so God is establishing a reality here that when we reject his mercy, his judgment is final. He's a just God, and he will bring judgment upon those that refuse to receive the forgiveness that he has offered to us through Christ. Now our story ends in verse 27 where it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. 
You see, Joshua simply trusted the Lord. He simply trusted and did what he was instructed to do. But as a result, God established him as a mighty man. And it wasn't that Joshua was anything great. You know, certainly there weren't going to be other generals in the area that were going to look at his battle plans and go, that's brilliant. We need to teach that in our military academy to our guys. No, I don't think that happened. I think they're looking at it going, how in the world did this guy even get to the place where he's at behaving this way? They were so, he, God was showing something with them. You see, his fame spread because it was obvious that he was incapable of doing any of the things that he, that he had done. God wants to make us spectacles, not because we're great, not because we have anything to offer or that he feels blessed because we're on his side. You know, he's not going up there going, man, I really struck it rich this time. Look at this one I saved. You know, everything's going to go great now. You know, he's not thinking that. God displays his grace through us. And when he does a mighty work in us and through us, it's always going to be people looking back, looking at us and go, how in the world did that happen? Look at this guy. That's the way, our, that's the way God creates a name for himself is by using broken vessels like us to do the impossible. You see, by, by, by God spreading the fame of Joshua throughout all the country, he is really spreading his fame because he is the hero of the story and he's the hero of every one of our stories every time we trust him. And so what have we learned from this? Well, God tells us to do something that's completely ridiculous. It's good for us to trust him. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest human being in this world. And as believers under the new covenant, as we have taken that first step of trusting the foolish message of the gospel to save us, we've done the hardest part. You know, we have trusted in the cross of Christ. We have trusted in Jesus Christ himself and the work that he did 2,000 years ago to give us life. At this point now, from day to day, as we are going through each battle that God puts us in, each battle of our own personal sanctification, each battle as a local church that we face communally together. As we trust the Lord and we believe that he is able and as we are willing to follow him, we will see God make the invisible visible, the untangible tangible. And we will experience a transformation that we would not experience through any other means. God is faithful and it's good for us to remember that each and every day. Let's pray.